0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna.
1: And me, Frederick. In this episode, Anna chats with Frederike from Gnosis. They cover prediction markets, wallet security, exchanges, and more.
0: So before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits recently released their smart contract audit executive summary. They aggregated the work of 23 smart contract audits, and they found that 78% of high-impact, easily exploitable findings are discoverable with automated analysis tools, 50% of all findings will never be found with automated tools, and according to their research, unit testing has no impact on security. For more about this audit, have a look at one of their recent blog posts at blog.trailofbits.com. We'll add the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. And now here's our interview with Frederica from Gnosis. So today I'm sitting with Frederica from Gnosis and Fullnode to talk about the journey that Gnosis took and some of the work that they're doing and hopefully more. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So besides... You know, Gnosis and Full Node. You're also known for uh, being one of the co-hosts of Epicenter. Yes. I thought we might actually kick that off, given that you're now on the Zero Knowledge podcast. <laughs> How did you come to be on Epicenter? How did that start out for you?
1: Um, the existing hosts asked me. So basically, Maya approached me and, and asked whether um, I think I'd enjoy uh, being a host on the show, and I was somewhat taken aback because I've been a long-standing fan. So I've listened to almost all episodes. And to me, it was just such an institution that um, the idea that I should be one of the hosts just seemed sacrilegious in a way. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. then, and then, you know, I, I, I quickly said yes. And uh, it all started.
0: So Epicenter, for those of you who don't know, is a fantastic blockchain podcast. And I think we're often like Zero Knowledge and Epicenter tend to be like put in the same category often. Yes. Uh, it's funny when you joined, I can totally imagine it's almost like crossing over to the other side. <laughs>
1: how
0: do you How do you like it? Like what, what have you taken from being on this other side from doing the interviewing?
1: Oh, it's so fantastically interesting. I mean, basically you get to sit down and uh, take a deep dive into someone else's project and um, that's something that um being an entrepreneur most of the time, you don't get to do. you just stew in your own soup a lot, yeah, and, and yeah, basically, uh just making the time to look at something else in depth and thinking about how are the parts function together and how the intricacies work and basically coming up with your own hypotheses and your questions and kind of then speaking with the person who's p- put their life into this. Mm-hmm. Um, it is such a good experience. It's a, uh, it's very humbling. So it's funny. Cause like in this episode, I'm
0: actually going to be digging into your world. <laughs> um, maybe we get to come back to the epicenter stuff as we go on. But I think for those who may not know you,
1: why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from? Sure. So I've been, in the, in the, I've been interested in blockchain technology for a long time. So I think probably since 2013. Um, and at the time I was still, a, I'm a physicist by training. So um, at the time I had just finished my PhD in um, low-dimensional complex quantum systems. And um, I was about to start my postdoc. I did a string of postdocs and uh, uh, then left academia for good. Because I thought I love building new things and I love setting up systems and I love things that have the potential to change the world. And I could think of no reason why I wouldn't want to do this full time. Cool. Did you feel like you couldn't do that in academia? Cause that's a that's a
0: big shift. Like it's a total shift in mentality to get out of that cycle of academic research or doing PhDs, having courses, having teachers. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're sort of thrown out into the world and like Judge like how you gauge what you're doing is very very different.
1: Yeah, that's true. So in in one way it's very different. In, in some in some respects it's very similar. It's I mean it's basically building things in modular ways so that you can improve upon the modules um, systematically. Um, thinking about the best ways to actually put together system architecture. Thinking about the ways that um, you can put together. N- and and the things that you've already understood in novel ways um that's a lot like physics um mm-hmm. and uh then there's the additional bonus that basically all physicists can code um so it wasn't complete it wasn't foreign to me so it was very much the way that I was already thinking um i al- already i also had a degree in maths so basically cryptography is also it also wasn't <sighs> terrifying. Or it wasn't anything. terrifying to me at all. I actually mm. quite like numbers. So what's very different than in academia, in academia, there are all these boxes you have to tick and buttons you have to hit. Um, and building things and finding things out has always given me immense pleasure. And um, I'm, I'm not good at being micromanaged or directed. So I actually quite like doing my own thing. Mm. And in academia, to a certain extent, that's very possible, but you're still within these confines of, you know, the things, the the boxes you need to tick, the Mm. buttons you need to push sort of thing. And entering this blockchain world, at the time it was still quite easy to raise money and thus get the freedom to also do your own thing without having other people breathing down your neck. To me, that was kind of an ideal situation, (laughs) an ideal outcome. So... um, I mean, obviously, there are advantages of being um, strapped for cash. Um, there are also advantages of not being strapped for cash as, as a startup. Um, and I feel like um, I, I don't look back. So yeah. I'm I still I, I'm still interested in physics and I still follow, you know, the latest developments in, in the mainstream, mainstream media. But I've never regretted leaving physics.
0: Tell me a little bit. So this is a little bit about your background, but let's hear a little bit about Gnosis.
1: Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. So basically, there's different there's different (laughs) ways of pronouncing uh, pronouncing uh, "gnosis." So Um, I also say it without the "g." So for those
0: out there, spelled "gnosis." Yeah. And I have I have I think in the past mispronounced it as well
1: so I think gnosis is kind of the Americanized uh, uh, pronunciation I think the real pronunciation is gnosis with with a soft g um, and the original Greek pronunciation is gnosis which is ah. the one pronunciation that we will not let slide so gnosis <laughs> and gnosis is both fine to us but okay. gnosis just I, Doesn't this work. does not cut what it for me what does this
0: word mean
1: um, it's the Greek word for knowledge oh that's amazing <laughs>
0: So, okay, what
1: is gnosis? I'm um, going to go with gnosis if that's okay. Yeah, that's completely fine. Um, so gnosis started off as the very first spoke within consensus and uh, set out to build prediction markets on Ethereum. We have we, that's still very much our core mission. We have found that there are building blocks that we need to build. Um, in order to get there. So um, now we still have very much this uh, prediction market focus and um, a focus on conditional tokens that we can talk um, about later as well. But we are also building smart wallets, so smart contract-based wallets that let you interact with dApps more efficiently and have uh, distinct advantages in terms of usability and user experience and security. And we also build novel market mechanisms in order to trade um, outcome tokens for prediction markets and other things. but is is gnosis then? is it like a because
0: it, now it's it sounds like there's a number of different projects that gnosis is building to reach a like a larger goal. But do you almost think of it like a is it a research company? Is it a dev house? is it a is it is it in itself like a miniature? Uh, and this may be a weird way to think about it, but like a miniature version of consensus where it's like Mm -hmm. spinning out
1: kind of newer ideas. Yeah. So I think you're, you're, you're hitting on a sore point for us. Um, I think basically all the things that we've built and that we're still building are super interesting in their own right. If I had to do it again, I think I would, um, put more focus on focus. Um, so basically, um, Thinking up a new project and thinking about um, how much sense it would make if we if we had that and how wonderful that would be, that's not good enough. So basically, I mean, we're we're only human. So basically, you can't divide your yourself up between a number of projects and still be as efficient as you could be if you only had one. Hmm. That being said, so we have we have uh, taken great care for the last year or so not to start any more projects, d- despite the fact that we have a gazillion ideas. (laughs) Um, So we will concentrate on the three that we have now because they also fit together really nicely Mm -hmm. in this triptych of create, trade and hold. So create in this conditional token um, framework, um, trade within these novel market mechanisms that we're building and hold within the smart wallets.
0: Okay, let's go, let's kind of step through that because I actually don't think we've ever had anyone on to talk about prediction markets. Like we have to kind of go back a step and define like what is a what is the Gnosis prediction market?
1: What was the first initial idea of Gnosis? Um the initial idea was that in principle, a smart contract uh, based blockchain makes it possible to create um, tokens that hold worth only under specific conditions. Um, so things like one euro under the condition that Brexit happens, um, October 31st or one euro under the condition that it doesn't. So in principle, if you put these two together, they're always worth worth one euro because oh, yeah. either one happens or the other. Um, but if you actually, um, have some sort of external input that tells you whether Brexit happens or not, um, you could, you can make them resolve automatically and you can trade them Individually, So you can have the yes token or the no token and uh, the value at which they tra- trade. So say 30 cents on the dollar or uh, 95 cents on the dollar gives you the probability um, that the market assigns to that event happening or not happening. So in a way, it's a lot like a stock market, only you're not trading parts of companies, you're trading information. Could it also be, I mean, it sounds like
0: it comes a little bit out of like betting and gambling possibly is it like or uh, what is i mean this this system without the blockchain i believe has existed for a long time right like this is like even digitized but not blockchain necessarily
1: so basically uh the answer is yes so basically betting transfers to this one-to-one so basically any betting market you can actually display as a prediction market it's not true the other way around so basically there's a lot of contracts that we um uh, enter into in an everyday setting that kind of have the same payout structure so for instance say you have um fire insurance for your house then basically in betting terms uh, you could say it's a bet on your house burning down because there's a payout if your house burns down and there's no payout if it doesn't so that's kind of exactly the same payout structure Um so yeah bets do have that payout structure um, but also More lots things. of other things do too. Also, if you enter into a competition for a tender, for instance, that's also got the same payout structure. Or, um, if, uh, if you have an option on something, you know, on the stock market, that's mm. also got the same payout structure. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to see how betting kind of falls into this pattern, but a lot of other things fall into this pattern as well. And if you look at, um, typical betting markets, um, they are, they are fairly constrained uh, in what you can actually bet on. Typically, it's um, sports. <laughs> so next next goal to mm, score um, totally. sort of thing. Um, that's very much what we, we as a company are not interested in. So we're interested in making information that was previously not tradable tradable and thereby eliminating information asymmetries and enabling people to take better decisions based on better information.
0: Do you know any? Do you know any projects more in like the Web two space or like regular startups that are kind of trying to do something similar without blockchain?
1: Absolutely. So the the one that most comes to mind that many le- listeners may actually know is Intrade. So Intrade was this um, political prediction market that existed ten years ago or so, and um, um, you could you could place predictions on, um, you know, U.S.-American primaries and presidential elections and geopolitical events around the world. Um, and there was um, a decent amount of um, activity and also the forecasts turned out to be eer- eerily accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was actually one of those, ju- I mean, If you look at the total user base, it wasn't humongous, um, but it got a lot of coverage because journalists like that kind of thing. They like reliable crowdsourced information. Yeah, In this
0: case, like adding the incentive layer actually helped probably drive a participation. Yeah. If it was just sort of like, what do you think? Answer this poll for nothing. <laughs> it's not going to get the same kind of dedicated participation.
1: Yeah. And so basically, that that also basically, that's kind of like a survey or a poll. So where we where you basically just ask people, what do you think is going to happen? But typically, if people actually have to back up their beliefs with money, they're more accurate. And also, if people have better insights, they're typically willing to place more money on this. Because if, if they think the crowd is wrong, or people are wrong about what's going to happen, then to them, it's basically free money. So basically, mm-hmm that's it's all based on the premise that markets are inherently efficient um so basically if if you don't believe in that then prediction markets are really not for you but if you if you if you would agree to that markets typically work um then this is a um super interesting way of um eliciting information from the crowds and the way and and why it it hasn't actually um been that much of a thing in the past decade or so is basically in trade um fell apart due to a number of unfortunate events um, so their ceo died on everest oh. um, and they um they um, had a prediction market on the price of gold where basically the cftc had told them um, to uh please take that down and they had and then basically the knowledge that Apparently, they had had this conversation, um, got lost, and they relisted it a couple of years later and got shut down. And basically, there wasn't enough seminar to start it up again. So, in principle, there was interest um, because the the payout structure so closely resembles betting. Um, there is d- prediction markets move in a tricky um, regulatory regime, Um, basically explaining to regulators why this is not betting or why it's not gambling um, or why maybe you can call it betting, but then the stock market should also be called betting. This is difficult and we have taken tremendous care to actually interact with regulators and explain them our reasoning. And yeah, so basically a lot of resources on our end have gone into that Um, and this also led to us... Um, getting an in principle license um, to offer prediction markets to retail customers, at least in Europe. Mm-hmm. So that will be going live soon. And if you would like to sign up for that, uh, even now before it happens, go to site.pm. So site as in uh, .pm, and sign up, and we will invite you for a beta that's starting soon. Cool. We'll add that to the show notes. So that's, so this is,
0: I, I have to ask another question on the prediction markets before we move on though. The other big project in the space that is very well known for being a production market marketplace is
1: Augur. Like, what's the difference between Augur and Gnosis? Um, So it comes very much from the same place. So it also comes from this idea of crowdsourcing information. It is a a blockchain-based prediction market. The way that Augur works is different in a number of ways. First and foremost, Orgo actually makes their money as a decentralized or, uh, oracle. So basically the rep token, the reputation token that is associated with Orgo, you, you need that in order to determine, um, which of the possible outcomes took place and which didn't take place. So basically it is a decentralized oracle mechanism, which is a super hard thing to, to, to build because obviously you need an escalation procedure mm. and they have that. Um, and it is, it's, it's a really good procedure. How do you, like, do you, can you work with them? Yeah. So basically we can kind of, we can piggyback off that. So basically we decided, um, to go the other way. So basically the Oracle problem is the one problem that we're not solving natively within Gnosis, despite the fact that we're building a million projects. <laughs> basically this is, uh, <laughs> Oracles is the one thing that we've always said, uh, we'll be Oracle agnostic and you can plug into Gnosis, whichever Oracle you want. Also because we anticipated that, um, Oracle providers will spring up and grow out of legacy businesses. So basically, if you look at um, how news corporations are going to develop, what the business models open to them in the future, um, you know, which ones will actually be viable, then providing um, good information um, to smart contracts is actually a really good one. Mm. Um, so say the Reuters and BBCs and Bloombergs of the world, we kind of, we anticipate that they will become Oracle providers in their own right. Um, and that for most um, uh, that for most um, sort of um, Oracle decisions, you don't actually need a fully distributed Oracle because you're okay to trust um, some trusted instance, say the BBC or uh, Reuters. Um, so you don't actually need your own you don't need a decentralized oracle for everything um you want an escalation procedure um and that's 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 a good thing to have um, but you don't need to have it fully decentralized just because that's pu- that puts a lot of overhead on mm-hmm. everything um, so basically we have we have concentrated on building good ma- market mechanisms um, for the prediction markets that you can build on top of our platform that's one of the things that Augur is struggling with so um, actually having decent liquidity on the market so if you actually check the markets then there's a couple that actually have a decent trading volume but the spread so basically if you buy something and then sell it um, again immediately. Um, you actually lose quite a lot of money. So basically, often on the on the order of like ten or twenty percent. Obviously, that doesn't happen if you have enough liquidity in the market. Um, so basically, what we've done is we have built these liquidity mechanisms that work even for markets that natively have low liquidity, um, like many sorts of information markets. Hmm.
0: I want to just go back for a second to the question of, like, to, to the topic of oracles in this context, mm-hmm. because in pre- in previous conversations and episodes, we've talked about oracles, but always in the context of price discovery on, like, for exchanges and yeah. stuff like that. How does an oracle, like, I'm trying to f- sort of wrap my head around an oracle for information. Yeah. What does that even, like, you just mentioned the BBC might become an oracle. What yeah so that? basically
1: um you you um have information that you can put out there and you just need a cryptographic signature to go with it so that you know that it's actually that you can actually use it so basically and then you you point at that new source and uh, yeah basically that it's it's kind of so nothing none of these are production ready yet. So there's one system called Reality IO. It's um Edmund Edgar's pro- project. It kind of it's got this it's a decentralized oracle in the sense that you can have the Orgo escalation process. But uh in principle supplying real world information into the blockchain is going to be a major business mm. and a major challenge. And a major challenge so basically because it you 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 rely um on your reputation a lot because if you think about um how how much is it worth potentially to falsify one of these claims then the deterrent obviously you know your reputation loss has to be bigger than whatever you stand to gain so this is why we think that already existing um companies that have a lot of reputation to lose um, are predestined to grow into this space interesting so from what I got, um, Gnosis and Augur are sort of
0: in the same space, could potentially work together, but are focusing in a different direction.
1: Yeah. So basically, Gnosis prediction. could even... So basically, because uh, Augur actually has their business model centered around um, the Oracle, we could, in principle, even piggyback off of them. So basically, you could actually specify Augur as an Oracle if you really wanted to. So the way that that would work is you would set up the same prediction market in Augur and then just say, um, I'll use whatever uh, whatever outcome Augur uh, decides has actually happened.
0: Hmm. Cool. Okay, so the platform, the Gnosis platform... What's the other part?
1: Like, so I, I now understand the Oracle part quite well. But what's the other part? Okay. So the other part is, um, what we, be, what we call the conditional token framework. So basically, um, it is, um, in the most, um, general sense, um, it is the transfer of value, um, the tokenized transfer of value, um, under a certain condition. And this, uh, this, uh, you can use this for prediction market markets. You can actually also use it for a number of other things. So okay. basically um, for completely diverse uh, use cases. Um, so you could use it, for instance, for um, access rights. Um, you could use it in games. Um, you could, could you use, use it for it. like insurance payouts. In principle, you can use it for insurance payouts. Um, you can use it um, for all kinds of financial... Mm-hmm. Uh, products, Um, you can use it even um, as um, conditional payment. Say, for instance, I hire you for a job or you put in a tender um, for a job that I want to hire someone for, Um, I could give you um, um, a conditional token as payment um, that only becomes worth something if you actually get the tender. So that would actually enable you to already Give these tokens that you already received to your subcontractors, um, and your subcontractors subcontra- already know that they'll be paid if only you win this tender. Hmm. Um, so basically, the, the the use cases are endless. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically, it's, it's a conditional token. Uh, it's a conditional token standard. Are you, is it a plat, like, is it a product? Is it sort
0: of an interface that you've built or what what is the actual thing? Is it just the mechanisms behind it? It is
1: the mechanism behind it. So basically it's smart contract based and it's very much against um, common wisdom of how you should build smart contracts. Um, It is what we call a monolith. So it is one giant big um, smart contract uh, to which anyone can append um, events um and uh, you can then have tokens that um pay out um under whatever combination you want f- out of all the events that are already listed mm. in that in that monolith contract um so this is in principle th- i mean this is infrastructure anyone can use it we mm-hmm. put it out there um and uh, d- then uh, we as a company have built um, an application on top of it to showcase it. Um, that's site that we talked about earlier. So it's the information discovery use case. Um, it'll start with very simple, with very very blockchain-centered questions like um, what's the maker stability fee going to be? Are there going to be more than 100, 000, uh, 100 million DAI out mm. there? Um, when will multi-collateral DAI go live? Um, and then basically you can tr- you can trade all of these singly, so if you have strong beliefs for any one of these, but you can also um, create them, uh, you can also trade them um, in a correlated manner. So you can say, um, I want to place a prediction on the uh, on the stability fee under the condition mm-hmm. um, that multi die go live by a certain date. So basically you can kind of e- extract all kinds of information around um uh, the way that things happen or the, the causalities or even, you know, just correlations. Um, so it, it, it'll, we think it's a tremendous tool to actually make information tradable and actually, um, for people to incentivize. Uh, to to be incentivized to trade on these markets in order to reveal what they know and what they believe, and in order for other people to make better decisions off of that.
0: Wow! So this what you're talking about there is almost like the like not a single prediction market, but rather like these linking of other. It's it's like you are building your own contract somehow, your own like unique cases. Like you'll say the sort of and if. Statements like you've basically said I want to predict that this will happen if this and this and this and this also
1: happens Exactly. And if none of those are done, if If none of these happen, you're just refunded. You're refunded. Yeah, exactly So basically you can you can make very specific predictions Um, and yes in a way it maps out the possibility space of the future which uh, basically, to any single thing that could happen under whatever circumstance, mm. it can, in principle, assign a probability. Um, and obviously for now, we expect our first users to be humans, but, um, in an age of big data and artificial intelligence, I fully expect that in five years time, um, almost all of our users are going to be AIs that trawl data and basically wow. people or engineers who have good algorithms to um, extract this kind of data, um, they're basically being paid by society or by the people who actually want this information to provide this information, leading to a wealth of information out there Mm. and enabling people to make better decisions. Would you say that this is still the core business. Yes, this very much is the core business. This is what we wanted to achieve. Okay. And basically everything else that we're doing um, is is kind of informed by wanting that to work. So um, we actually built the very first version of the smart contract in o- order to hold our own ICO funds. And that's still around. So basically, that's the multi-sig that held the largest Amount of value in the space, so it was you know in the couple of billions, just because you know more or less well, many many ICO projects used it, and private people also use it, and that kind of segued into this project, the Safe, um, which is a, a personal smart wallet um, that is mobile first, and you can add multiple keys in order to increase security. I realize we haven't actually talked about your team, <laughs> and I feel like we should probably talk a
0: little bit about your co-founders and how the company is a little bit distributed and what those other projects are. So you are one of the co-founders
1: of Gnosis. Um no, technically I'm oh. not a co-founder. Okay, you're not a um, co-founder. I, no, I joined very early and I was there from the get go, but in the beginning I had I had a real job. So I joined Martin and Stefan after they had already founded. Martin and Stefan, they are two fantastic guys. Um, they met at university um, 15 years ago or so. And they found that they can work together marvelously. So um, they started working together in 2015, 2014, 2015, when Martin met Joe Lubin. Joe obviously is the founder of um, Consensus and one of the co-founders of Ethereum. Back in the day, when Consensus was literally him and his assistant Ashley, and uh, Martin and Stefan kind of became the first Consensus employees and started working on this. Basically, they had had this prediction market project on Bitcoin previously, and Joe convinced them that this would be way better suited to have this on Ethereum, d- despite the fact that Ethereum back then wasn't actually live. Wa- wasn't live. So there was the white paper there, but that was about it. And they started building this on Ethereum. Yeah. So basically they they started as a spoke within consensus and were spun out into our own company now. Um, In um, early 2017, um, we conducted a token sale afterwards.
0: Had you already joined by this point?
1: Yeah, I okay. had I had joined then. Yeah, and uh, then we conducted token sale, and uh, that was two and a half years ago. And we've been building stuff ever since. Okay, and you were like an earlier sale, early
0: two thousand seventeen. You said,
1: yeah. So we were in early two thousand seventeen. So yeah, we were Good one timing. of the earlier ones. <laughs> yeah, we, we lucked out in that respect. Yeah. So obviously, there's uh, there's always a big element of luck, right? <laughs>
0: Okay, so you you raised that those funds started to build the prediction market. Yeah,
1: we had actually something live by then. So basically, we were the one of the very first projects that were actually live. So we actually had a prediction market platform live by the t- time that we conducted the token sale, and then basically getting regulators to approve was took a long time. So uh, so we started building the infrastructure around it that we anticipated we'd need. Ah, okay, I got it. And so what are those other pieces of
0: infrastructure? So, and like, who's maintaining what in the in the company? Uh,
1: that's a good question. So basically, um, Martin, Stefan and I, we have kind of this rough division that I am responsible for prediction markets. Stefan is responsible for wallets and Martin is responsible for the exchanges. We talk a lot. So uh, basically everything is kind of consensus-based uh, between us, um, but those are like the rough responsibilities. Then we have a fantastic team. So we we are just over 50 people now. We are headquartered in Gibraltar. We have an office there. All our finance and compliance functions are there. Um, we have a second office um, in the north of Spain. Um, then we have a dev hub in Berlin uh, here at Fullnode. Um, and then we have another 10, 15 people who are fully remote.
0: Hmm. So that's the team. That's the team. And so you just mentioned these two other projects. One, mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of hinted at it, but it was like the wallet and the exchanges. Yeah. Um, I think you've already kind of explained what
1: the wallet is. Yeah. And it's a multi-sig wallet. And this, actually, what what is safe exactly? Um, it's called, so basically it's it's yeah. the second version of this multi-sig, which is um, uh, a personal smart wallet called the safe. Um and, uh, there's a team version out there as well, which is basically the exact continuation of the Gnosis Multisig. Um, only now, basically back in the day when Stefan programmed it more or less in uh, the better part of a week. Um, and that's what it looked like as well. So basically, you know, Stefan's a fantastic programmer. He's not a designer. Um, and, uh, it was never hacked. So we have to, I mean, it, 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 it was, it was a good product. It was just, um, very much not, um, the thing that we anticipated to take off like it did, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, basically, back then, obviously gas costs weren't such an issue. And basically, if you were to deploy a new um, noseless multi-sick these days, um, it'll cost you like twenty to fifty dollars, depending on the uh, depending on the exact gas price on that day. Um, and the new version is much much more efficient. I see. I see. Um, and it's also been formally verified. So as far as I know, it's currently the only smart wallet out there that's formally verified. That's interesting. So that that's sort of,
0: this has come up a few times with a number of guests, this idea that like you build something with no idea how much value it's actually going to hold at some point. Yeah. I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with that actually? I guess in this, like, did you immediately realize that you needed to kind of build a a better version were you keeping like a very close eye on this contract once the value accumulated started to grow
1: yeah, I mean, it all happened so quickly. Right. I mean, basically, if you if you think back to 2017, I mean, it was mostly that um, Ether just appreciated so much in such a short time frame. And all of a sudden, this thing was holding billions of dollars. And yeah, I had this recurring nightmare where basically someone would call me in the middle of the night and say, like, there's there's something wrong with the multi We've had a hack. And d- 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 so knock on wood, it never happened. Um, but yeah, of course, you think these thoughts. I mean, that is,
0: that is very much like the nightmare scenario. And we know people who've gone through something like that. How did you like watching that sort of from, Did like, did you see the hacks happen to other projects and other multisigs, for example, and, and immediately look back at your project? Like, did that force, is that why you did formal verification? Like, was there like a lot of security fear?
1: Yeah, of course there is. Yeah. I mean, um for one our own funds were in that wallet but also if you think about everyone else who who stores their funds in that wallet yes so basically when when the parity hack happened it hit very very close to home um, and we've, we've been we've lucked out so far um, but yeah with the sort of value stored in these things security really you have to put that first and foremost and we have very stringent Um, practices as to when code can be changed, um, when audits happen. Basically, we went through the formal verification, despite the fact that we're actually not making any money off of the safe. We did that kind of as an, it's kind of an infrastructure project. And we still spend a lot of money on paying for our formal verification just because we didn't want that to happen to us. Mm. Did Did
0: you do that after? the parity hack happened yeah
1: so basically we did that on the new version um so basically the new and gas efficiency improved one so basically the old one i think it's fair to assume that it is safe just because th- th- you know if you think in terms of uh if you think in terms of uh uh potential payouts it was just a huge honeypot right so basically had there been a vulnerability it's probably would have been exploited by now. Um, so yeah, we did it for the new uh, improved version and uh, that's come back clear and uh, you can actually, we 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 make it a habit to uh, to publicize all our security audits so you can actually go look um, at that on the internet. Okay,
0: so now we're kind of getting into the third part of the business. So of the three main categories we listed earlier on, the last one being exchanges, but what does that actually entail? Like what, what is an exchange? or what are exchanges in
1: the Gnosis context? Um, That's a really good question. Um, So uh, exchanges, we all know exchanges, so decentralized exchanges, centralized exchanges, um, and so on. And basically to us, it seemed um, that building an exchange on a blockchain actually comes with very specific constraints, namely that um, time on blockchains um, is not continuous. And that is very much not like, if you go to a stock market then time is continuous and that's why um uh why traders like to be closer to the stock market in order to have um lower latencies in terms of their orders um but um block time is inherently blocky so th- mm. it's discrete um so we thought about um we thought about auction mechanisms or we thought about exchange mechanisms um that don't um See this as a flaw, but as a feature, Um, and that's basically the uh, that's basically the approach that we have taken to building exchanges. So, do you build? Did you build a dex?
0: Did you build? Because I also heard about the DX DAO, which you've also done. So, where does this all fall?
1: Yeah. Um, So, uh, uh, yeah. So, basically, we've we've experimented a bit. So, basically, the very first dex that we built was the Dutch Dutch exchange, um, which was based on the Dutch auction contract that we actually used for our own token sale. The idea was that for low liquidity tokens, actually having an order book, is very inefficient and if you go to DEXs and I mean there's a couple of liquid pairs but if you look at all the other pairs they're illiquid and you have a large spread and um, uh, you have large slippage so basically the price changes fast just because there's not, a li- li- not enough liquidity. And one way of combating this is just batching things together for a while. So saying like we are batching a couple of hours together and then basically everything will be cleared at the same price. So what we actually had is we had this mechanism um, where an option started at um, an arbitrary price so actually twice the past clearing price so say the last clearing price for Ether was uh, 200 DAI so basically you'd start at 400 DAI um, and then basically everyone who wanted to sell Ether for DAI could put their Ether into a uh, contract, then the price for the ether in this contract would drop and people would send die at that point in time where they, where they are happy with the price Ah. and they would receive that price or less. And basically when the total volume of ether to be sold and die to buy this ether would kind of match up at the current price, um, the auction would stop and the entire thing would be cleared at that price. So basically Mm. um, the time at which you send um, your payment token, this indicated your willingness to pay. And from a game theoretical perspective, this is a really good auction mechanism because it makes sure that, well, first of all, um, everyone pays the same price and everyone pays what is the fair market price? The, it, the, the market re- has actually defined somehow. Exactly. Regardless of what they were actually willing to pay, how mm. much it was worth to them. So so it can be argued this is the fairest way mm. of actually um, conducting a sale for fungible goods. And this protects that front-running case. Exactly. So basically you can't front-run say. on these exchanges. So basically if you look at... um decentralized order book exchanges front running is a huge risk and p- basically they've have, there have been analyses of the uh, of this so basically um maybe we can put the link in the show notes but um phil day he's done yeah. this entire page um on how much front running costs you on dexes and it's like one to two percent so that's how much you lose on all trades um and that combats that um it also combats um the spread so basically if uh uh because everyone gets the same price um and in principle so basically it's slow so that's the one drawback so basically it's not an instantaneous thing so you send your your tokens and you get your uh return tokens um a couple of hours later this and we try to make this um into the tagline um so slow slow trades uh fair trades take time and the the you can actually still find it on the internet that's it's it at it's at slow trade um and it it didn't really take off <laughs> it's like I, an amazing experiment it's an it's an amazing experiment, and people have used it for um auctioning so basically we've we've done experiments ourselves where we said okay we have we have extra die we will auction this Um, Off for Ether, and we would auction off 100,000 DAI at once, which is something that typically decentralized exchanges, they cannot take this kind of. You'll get enormous slippage if you, if you, if you put, say, 100,000 DAI on IDEX, you'll end, you'll lose a large portion of your, of your money. And we did this um, 10 times in a row. So actually, we we auctioned off 1 million DAI. And um, in the beginning, we had like a little bit of slippage before, like, um, uh, market makers. Well, we're, look, we're looking into this. So we're basically the, on the very first, um, auction, we lost 8%. Um, but the subsequent auctions, they close within 1% of the actual d- die price mm. and basically having a decentralized auction mechanism, um, where you can actually put Um, $100,000 worth of anything on there and get more or less fair market value, this was a novum. Um, But obviously the user experience was um, a lot different from what people were used to. With exchanges. Yeah, with exchanges because uh, people typically want, Mm -hmm. um, it it also gives you peace of mind, right? So basically you don't need to think about um, that, you know, there's still like something, a process open that you need to check on at some point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, And also it doesn't really guarantee. So basically despite the fact that we did these experiments and we kind of show that it kind of closes more or less within market uh, uh, within market price. There's no guarantee for that. So basically, in principle, it can drop to zero. And I mean, obviously, that's a market failure and it shouldn't happen. But there's no guarantee against that because in, in effect, you're actually you're you're placing a market order. And I think people are inherently adverse to that it was a super interesting experiment and i think i'm i'm happy that we undertook it i i still believe in the market mechanism of dutch auctions for many things i think in principle it was a super valid experiment and we actually ended up um gifting this protocol um to a dao that we helped summon um together with dao stack it's called the dx dao and um, basically it it can make decisions on whatever it's a dao it's its own thing um but uh and we have no part of it um anymore. So we just helped jumpstart it. Um, but we gifted the DAO um this uh, protocol. So basically, I mean obviously there's parameters that you can set. So basically how much funding does an auction need to have in order to actually set off a new auction? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of the so there's this there's um the in the the um in the on the Dutch exchange, you didn't extract value, um, but there was a liquidity uh, fee that went into to the next pot. And basically how much that is, uh, that can be changed and what kind of tokens can be whitelisted to generate the reward token. And I mean, basically, there's all kinds of parameters that can be set in principle. And um, we we gave that to the DAO. So the DAO in
0: itself, that that was also a project that I heard about. Um, and I think I've mentioned on, on a previous episode with Aragon with uh, Jorge. Mm-hmm. So what I heard with DXDAO, a friend of mine pinged me and was like, oh my God, there's this DAO and it has incredible distribution and participation and everybody's really excited about it. I, I mean, at this the way you sort of say it, you summoned it and then you sort of like let let it be. What has happened with the DXDAO?
1: Um, the DXDAO is still running uh, the, Dutch, uh, the Dutch exchange. So it's still very much out there. Um, it uh, There's proposals in there that you can look at now. Um, there's around, I, I think, three to 400 uh, distinct individuals who hold reputation within this DAO. Um, it's based on the DAO stack protocol. So in principle, it's got this scalable consensus mechanism that they call a holographic consensus. Um, it is a um, really nice piece of software. Uh, Did it become, like the, the story that I heard though, is a few, a few members started to accumulate more of the... There are a couple of people who hold a large amount of the reputation. So um, basically, if you say if you got the right fifteen people, or maybe the right twenty people into a room, you would get more than fifty percent. But ah, okay. still, um, it's it's people we don't know and we are not affiliated with um, who did this of their own accord. Um, and there's um, three hundred uh, more Men. people who are who are who are also members of the DAO and who also hold reputation and vote in votes. Okay. I have a last sort of question on the tech. I also have, oh, my, yeah. uh, so basically we're, we're, we're building um, a uh, a new uh, exchange. That's why ah. I said exchanges. Um, so uh, do you want me to go into that now? Sure, sure. Yeah, why not? <clears throat> okay. And so basically the D- Dutch exchange was um, in our, in, in my eyes, this is like the first version of an exchange that we build um, that kind of uses the advantages that blockchain actually has over. Uh, continuous systems. Um, we ha- we're taking this to a new level with um, a product a product um, whose working name currently is Diffusion Exchange. Um, uh, in, 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 so the Diffusion Exchange is also a batch auction based exchange. Um, it's not based on the Dutch auction um, and it's not based on pairwise auctions so you wouldn't auction off Ether against DAI and DAI against Ether um, but you actually throw all, all possible orders into one pot um, and then you find the optimal solution across all of these different orders. Um, so this this has um, a number of nice side effects say, um, you want to say, uh, sell token A for B. I want to sell B for C. And the third person wants to sell uh, C for A. On a traditional order book exchange, we would never be matched. So, or we would r- rely on arbitrageurs to actually do arbitrage between these different order books. But in a one pot exchange, um, there, there would be a ring trade or a higher order ring trade, um, that can actually still solve this natively within the exchange. And because we're assuming that there will be, we'll live in a in a multi-token world with a lot of tokens, and I mean we can even see that now with um, the way that stable tokens are going. So there's not just one stable token; there are uh, ten, and probably in the in the, at the end of the year there'll be twenty that have like some amount of traction, and you can actually. Uh, trade any token against any of these stable tokens. And in principle, it would totally make sense to pool the liquidity, um, on all of these order books. But basically on an order book based model, you can't do that. So basically, mm. um, in, in like the one pot exchange, um, you can find the optimal solution across all of these. Um, and if you look at how that's better than a conventional order book exchange, it's marginally better if you have one central token against which everything is traded. So currently, A little bit like Ether. Um, But if you trade a large number of low liquidity tokens against each other, order books become incredibly inefficient and having this one pot actually helps a lot. And we're building a proof of concept that is out in the coming months with a working name of StableX, um, which does exactly that for stable tokens, because that's a lot easier to build because you know everything is close to one and people can provide liquidity at more or less um, no risk to themselves. It's funny because just going back to earlier in our conversation
0: where you were like, no, we're getting more focused, (laughs) more and more focused. And I'm like,
1: well, it sounds like there's still some experiments. You should have seen us a year ago, but basically (laughs) it's like we we went wild on all the, all the different ideas that we had, but basically it really fits into the entire thing because if you look at, um, if you look at conditional tokens and outcome tokens, these are ERC20 tokens and you can, you, and basically, um, if you look at um, uh, information tokens that conditional tokens that have um, a register of different conditions, by de- by definition, they will be low liquidity, mm-hmm. and you will need a good trading mechanism in order to trade them efficiently, in order to actually uh, to enable this exchange of information that we envis- uh, envisage, and this is why we need the diffusion exchange. That sounds like, that's fair. But I have one other
0: question about another project or a side project, or I don't know if it's still around, but I remember there was a team working on zero-knowledge stuff. Yes and they kind of I came into contact with them because they were organizing a trusted setup. Mm-hmm. I think maybe thinking about doing a
1: universal trusted setup. So what happened with that team and where did that live? Um that lives um in the diffusion space. So obviously having this one pot exchange is computationally complex and doing this on chain is unfeasible. Um so the idea is that people submit Anyone can submit a solution um, to, a, to a list of tokens that are in a closed batch and say this is the solution, how to um, redistribute them in um, a more or less optimal way. way. Um, and, and the idea is that people submit this alongside a, uh, a zero-knowledge proof, that this is actually a valid solution. Mm. Um Obviously, the privacy aspect is also great, but mostly in terms of the scaling that it gives you, namely that you can prove that this is a good solution without actually having to go through the entire solution on chain. and uh, we we are still interested in that. Um, the team is uh, still following developments, but basically coming up with three different things at once, namely how to build this novel market mechanism, you know, even you know outside of the blockchain space, um, then how to put it on blockchain, and then the third, how to get it to scale efficiently, we found. That there's so much happening in the zero knowledge area that that's kind of it. It's kind of taking care of itself, and basically we feel like we we need to figure out um, the how to build this marketplace mm. um, on blockchain first, and then we'll worry about the scaling in a second step. But yes, we are ver- basically integrating zero knowledge into this um, diffusion exchange. Is very much a thing that we will do in the future. So
0: it sounds, and I, I can follow that too. I mean, or I, I can I can attest to that as well, which is that um, there is a lot of development in zero knowledge, and things that were limitations like six months ago may no longer be limitations with new protocol, exactly upgrades
1: or ideas. And these things are kind of they're happening. They're underway. They're they're dedicated teams working on them um, and basically we feel that if we check back in four months when we figured out the other stuff um, we can just piggyback off of what everyone else did <laughs> probably and I mean by then ho- hopefully there will be a universal trusted uh, setup for Ethereum I mean that would be wonderful I think it's been really amazing to hear all of the things that Gnosis is
0: working on you know I've worked around you guys for quite a while and I feel like I didn't know really what you guys were working on
1: we're and- not good at marketing <laughs> so much Marketing is not one of the skills we bring to the table. We're builders. <laughs> but
0: it sounds like it's, I mean, it really is, you know, there's so many ideas and so many tests being done. And I'm very, I'm definitely excited to see where you guys go next. But let's talk sort of to wrap up um, about Berlin and this Berlin dev office and where we are right now, where we're recording out of. Because um, we're in Fullnode and Fullnode is a project that you lead on the side of all of this, (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: what is Fullnode? Where did it come from? Um, Fullnode is a wonderful space um, that has kind of become the heart of the Berlin blockchain community. So it very much started with us in that um, we were working at the ETHDEF office in Waldemarstrasse before it moved. That was wonderful because everyone who worked on Ethereum was there at the time and as nice as that was it was a horrible office i i hope no one i hope no one blames me for saying this but basically it was it was more or less an apartment there were no Mm. there no, there were no ways to actually have meetings there efficiently everyone took important uh phone calls on the fire escape because that was the one place where you could actually talk but basically having this community was such an asset. Um and we we had raised the money. We knew that we were going to hire people. So um it was limited in space and we also knew that we wanted a proper office. So we started looking at office spaces. And it just was it was so sad. You know, just the three of us looking for office spaces when we had, you know, when we when we had worked in the space with this really vibrant cool community. Um and at the same time um Brian, who is my co-host at Epicenter, um, Brian he, Crane. Brian Brian Crane. Yeah, he he was uh, briefly the COO at Cosmos, and he was very much in the same situation that he was looking for an office space for Cosmos, and he had the same experiences, namely that you know just leaving leaving the ETH Dev office and its community spirit just seemed daunting. So basically, we teamed up. Um, Brian and I and we started looking for spaces and we found this and uh, we had just signed the contract when Brian stopped being COO at Cosmos and it all fell on my shoulders. <laughs> 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 um, but you guys are now co-hosts on Epicenter, no so you're clearly still friends. I, I, yeah, I don't hold it against him. I, 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 these things happen. Yeah, I hadn't anticipated how much work it would be. So basically this place, there was nothing in here. It looked a little bit bombed out. So um we uh, we set up an office and basically now um 105 people work from here um it's uh there's uh regular meetups here um it's kind of where people come to if they come to berlin and are visiting blockchain people and that's wonderful it's also got a really good name the full
0: node co-working (laughs) space for anyone who hasn't been to berlin it's definitely a spot to check out um and I agree with you. I think it really like anytime there's a, like the blockchain week or events happening in town, you'll come in here and there'll be all these teams from all over the world in the in the co-working space and sort of the open space. And there's these meetups. Um, I think, you know, the time that I've spent here has been really, really great. So <laughs> thank you for putting that together for for all of us and, you know, helping to make this Berlin scene kind of really flourish in a way it's cool that it's not necessarily only in the like the eth dev office also would have been ethereum only but actually this office i feel has also branched out like it's it is more kind of it's a wider ecosystem Oh yeah, for sure. In. So
1: basically, and, um, I mean, the number of people who've worked in here and moved out again, because they grew, th- th- those are also, I mean, we're still friends with them. They're still in the network. So basically, um, zero X moved out, centrifuge moved out. Uh, but I mean, also people move in. So recently matter labs moved in and I mean, basically there's, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's movement in the space yeah. and that's wonderful. Very cool. So listen, thank you so much for coming on the
0: podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And, uh, I've said this to Su- Sunny's the only other Epicenter go- guest who I've had on here, but I'm always open to another crossover <laughs> if, if you guys want to invite me to Epicenter. I don't know what I'd talk about, but like <laughs> just putting yeah, it will out there, cool. that would be super cool. <laughs> All right, so thanks again, and to our listeners, thanks for listening.